Then would you turn the click off? It's really off-putting. Catch the train to London, stopping at Rejection, Disappointment, Backstabbing Central and Shattered Dreams Parkway. Which is the worst manga, fish, iron, rumour or war? Okay, season... No, I was going to say season five. No, been watching too much Netflix. It is season one Ableton cast, episode five with the incredible Cy Francis. No spoiler alerts, but he's pretty amazing. So anyways, here we go. Cy, would you do me a favor and introduce <laughs> yourself? Um, yeah, so I, I guess I predominantly work as a musician um, and mostly as a bass guitarist, although I guess kind of that, that expands to, I guess, general bassist. Um, so for the last five years that's kind of looked like predominantly playing um, in Ellie Golding's live band um, and so that's kind of that's the core I guess of what I do and everything else just kind of come out of yeah wait there was a weird let me I've just got something weird that's okay some weird distorted vocal coming from somewhere um, sorry, do you want me to start that again? I was just like, I was, as I started talking, I don't know where it's coming from. It sounded like a movie, but like a distorted that's movie. A, that's okay, there's no problem on my end. Like I said, I, I'll edit it pretty heavy, so... Um. It turns out maybe my room's haunted. <laughs> um, yeah. So you are, you play with Ellie, which that's a pretty massive, that's a pretty massive gig. You know, yeah. as far as... I guess, as far as yeah. gigs go, um, can can you just uh, kind of speak about how that gig came about and how you started doing it? Um, yeah, I mean, basically, I I bumped into Joe Clegg, who is Ellie's drummer and musical director, and has kind of been with her from the start. I I basically just bumped into him backstage at V Festival um, in like two thousand and. I think it must have been 2011, maybe 2010. Um, no, 2011. And I was there. I was playing at the time. I was playing bass for an American kind of folk pop group called The Pierces. And um, yeah, Joe and I had a bunch of mutual friends. And and we'd. I think I think he'd added me as a friend on Facebook. Um, and I kind of at the time I was fairly indiscriminate about the Facebook friend requests I accepted and uh, we yeah we kind of ended up bumping into each other and chatting and and that was kind of it really just just sharing kind of mutual acquaintances um, and kind of awareness of each other and then I think it was maybe like a fortnight later I was in Westfield shopping centre in Shepherd's Bush um, and I literally kind of walked into him um, I think I was with Tim Cook yeah, I just saw Tim, actually. He was in South Africa as well. Yeah, so I was with Tim, and Tim knew Tim knew Joe. And I kind of, I think I, like, backed into Joe in a shop. And then we kind of just started talking, and then Tim had to go somewhere, so Joe and I ended up having a coffee. And it basically turned out that, like, a week or two later, there was an acoustic gig that Ellie was doing for Nike. Um, and they needed a bass player. and And so... That, that was kind of it really and I don't I don't think Joe had actually heard me play 
Um, <laughs> so he kind of he kind of put me blind. Yeah, and then I did that, and then kind of after that, I think that that then kind of began a discussion about being involved kind of more more substantially kind of I think that was at the end of her first album campaign and so it was kind of maybe nine ten months later and she was kind of getting ready for the second album campaign Halcyon Joe got in touch I met up with him in management and I was offered the gig and that was kind of over five years ago now so um yeah so that's kind of been it wow amazing amazing yeah. <laughs> so one of the reasons why I wanted to um, get you on the show, apart from just being like a really cool guy, is I know that you guys use Ableton uh, with Ellie. And I wondered yeah, if you could do. just sort of talk us through a bit, you know, your rig and, you know, what your experience has been like with it. And um, yeah, yeah, basically any sort of um, the things that have worked well and anything that hasn't worked well. Um, yeah, so I guess I guess to give a bit of background on that, I think so. Before I before I was working with Ellie, I'd been I'd been kind of working for a bunch of different bands um, and other kind of a few I guess kind of sonic art projects and performance art projects, all kind of utilizing Ableton um, and and kind of bands doing that. So I I'd kind of I guess was quite heavily involved in that I'd done a few projects where we were essentially kind of using Ableton Live to create spontaneous backing tracks live or to kind of play to things and so Joe was aware of that so when I I kind of got involved with Ellie um, additionally to kind of my role as a musician there was I kind of worked with Joe a bit on on the Ableton Live rig. So they'd, I think at that point they'd been using HD 24s, so like a hardware playback system. And all the keyboard sounds had been like a mixture of hardware synths and and like a bit of main stage. And so I kind of, I think at that point it was, I guess it was kind of a consultative role with Joe. And then there was a another guy called Ed White who was helping us kind of with the, hardware side of things like Joe had a pretty strong vision of what he wanted to build and achieve and so Ed kind of understood the hardware side of things and I had a bit more experience of some of the Ableton things so we kind of I guess the three of us worked together on a rig then and then over the years we at that point all of our keys were on a centralized main stage system and then we eventually then kind of moved everything onto Ableton Live. Um, we were having kind of serious headroom problems with main stage and it just kind of, for the music that we were doing, I guess parts are heavily sequenced and heavily kind of a lot of arpeggiators and things yeah. like that. And we found that main stage, it doesn't, it, the way that it kind of receives and handles MIDI clock means that it doesn't always discriminate the downbeat from every other beat so that was causing us some problems for what we were doing and we had lots of automated um, things like filter sweeps and other things happening so we were kind of sending lots of MIDI sequence data from Ableton to main stage so we consolidated that all down so I guess that eventually moves us to the rig that we're on now. It all sounds really cool and quite quite complicated but yeah, um, uh, yeah, I guess it, I mean, it, it kind of is and it isn't. Um, 
it, it's I guess it's all I I guess the whole of it is maybe complex, but it's made up of I guess all the discrete parts that that kind of go to it together are all relatively simple. I, I kind of always think of it it's a bit like looking at a mixing desk. Um, and you can look at a mixing desk and feel like, oh, this is like hundreds of knobs. Um, but I think once you start to understand that each one is like a channel strip and each section of that can then be moved down into like your gain stage and then your EQs and your compression, I think then you can start to understand it a bit more. So I feel like Ableton Live, the way that we're using it is kind of like that. If you understand its discrete parts, the way they fit together isn't as complex as it maybe can first appear or sound. Yeah. If that makes sense. Do you guys use it in session view or arrangement view? Um, so we have historically used it in session view. And that was how we used it originally. Um, I think at the minute, the playback side of things has now moved into arrangement view. Yeah. Um, and I think, and the keyboards, we're still using them in session view. Um, but I think we may we may kind of move in the future towards everything being an arrangement yeah. view, um, which is kind of the main benefit of that is at this point in time is about the way that um, Ableton currently handles mapping of tempos. Yeah. Um, yeah. So arrangement gives you kind of more precise control over ramping tempos up and down, which we found we've started doing more as we kind of have segues into songs sure. and arrangements sure. that kind of require that to change. And in, a re in, in the session view, we're kind of doing that through, um, I guess, like internalized MIDI mapping. So we have kind of like a MIDI CC and a clip that's, program to control the tempo but essentially the way that that's i guess midi is is always in values of kind of either one to 127 yeah um or zero to 127 so you're always kind of limited to a maximum of 128 discrete steps um so that means that when you're moving your tempo in session view with midi mapping you're you're actually not smoothly transitioning your um you're essentially kind of stepping up in these steps. So that's caused a few sure. issues with some of our, um, some of our more, more kind of advanced or kind of arrangements around timing. So that's kind of the main reason we're looking at moving to arrangement. And then the, the other bonus is kind of when you're rehearsing, you can jump straight into a chorus a bit more easily than if you're working in session mode, the way that yeah. we kind of have session yeah, mode is sure. a whole, a whole song is contained within a clip rather than yeah. parts. So, yeah, I know that, that makes sense. So you mentioned something about kind of like filter sweeps and I yeah. wondered, is that something like, is that something that is happening like live? Is that, or is it just kind of like already pre-recorded on, on the record and, you know, then it's just a track that's got the filter sweep, you know, already recorded in basically printed oh no so so that's no that's essentially okay. stuff we're doing live so i get like our i guess our mo is trying to make as much of the yeah. show live as possible um so like there's kind of our, our playback is probably less than you'd realize like there's basically like no bass so all, all of the bass side of things is either played by me on bass or synth or kind of me kind of hitting both of them at the same time um all of our drums are pretty much live. There's a bit, bits of percussion and effects really is mostly what track is. Sometimes extra keys that can't be played, but 
I guess the way that we've used Ableton Live is allowing us to play as much as possible. So it kind of, so we, the filter sweeps are essentially like Ableton acting like a sequencer. So it's like our, it's like yeah. a third hand essentially on your cutoff knob. So both of your hands on, can on the be keys, busy yeah. playing. Um, yeah, and we and we kind of do it. I mean, obviously, we try and keep stuff live performance where we can. So, um, I know that Joe's kind of vision from the musical direction side of stuff is trying to kind of keep it live. Um, and so often that'll be cutoffs will be you know either on a mod wheel or on a expression pedal, but on I guess with kind of the production a lot of pop stuff. Um, you kind of have these feature kind of, especially on the dancier tracks, these kind of filter sweeps that need to kind of happen in yeah. sync across, you know, essentially across all of your instruments. So that would be across your synth, across your bass synth, across maybe even a piano. So Ableton essentially handles the automation of effects for us, um, as well as sometimes like parameters in sounds or, or sending kind of program changes to change sounds and patterns. So this might be a stupid question, so I do apologize, but do you have, is there more than one Ableton rig that you guys have, or is are all your instruments, so basically is the Ableton rig, it's taking care of the any sort of backing tracks, and then also your instruments are going into it as well, which it will do filter sweeps on that. Is that all happening on the same machine, or are there different machines? Or have I got it completely wrong? No, no, no. We we have two, so we have two machines. We have one one for kind of playback and yeah. drum triggers. Um, so all of Joe's kind of uh, electronic kind of drum samples come out of there. So his drum pads plug into that, and that computer handles that and playback um, and click track. And then we have a separate computer that is handling all of the keyboards on stage. So that's like a piano, my bass synth, and two keyboards at the kind of main keyboard player's position. So, and then within that, there's maybe, I think I have maybe six, five, four voices of bass synth and a voice of kind of bass sub. And then the keys, there's kind of, the piano is just a single voice. And then across the keys, there's maybe 12 voices spread across okay. two boards so that's all that's all in a separate um keyboard thing we've not with that gig we've not really been able to consolidate it all into a single session although joe and joe's also MDing an artist called becky hill who i've been playing bass for and with that we've built a system that is everything's just on one computer so all playback all keys is all on one computer and I run my bass, my, my live bass guitar yeah. through that as well. So, um, so that's all, so it can, it can be, but with Ellie, I think we've, we've kind of, we're so involved on the keyboard side of things that we kind of need that separation just for the CPU really to have yeah. it comfortably. Can you tell me about like some of the synths that you're guys using? You said you use a bass synth and then the keyboard player has a few things going on yeah. as well. Yeah, so we we just have with Ellie, we just have mini controllers on stage. Yeah, so we do we do everything in the box, um, and we pretty much, in fact, we exclusively use native instruments. Um, 
Can you tell me what you use for um, bass synth? I'm a bass player. Oh, well. yeah. Well, um, as well as keyboards. But. <laughs> well, for bass synth, I use predominantly, especially on the newer stuff, it's, um, I'm using Massive. Um, okay. And then I use, for some of the older stuff and, and for some of the newer stuff as well, I'm using kind of uh, Contact to run some samples that I've made of some of my own synths so that would be like I've sampled like my Moog Voyager like an MS-20 uh, like yeah. a SH-101 um, and some of them are kind of sampled either through like effects or some other signal chains so I kind of have generally that but increasingly I'm just I'm just using Massive I really like Massive it's really powerful it kind of does everything I feel like every time I, I want more off of it, it kind of meets me and does it for me. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. been... So you've obviously, you've played, you know, real bass synths as yeah. well as, you know, everything in in the box. And I was just wondering, because I, you know, I play with Steve, who who, who you know as oh, well. Yeah, and Steve, Steve uses like the Sub 37. Yeah. Um, and I notice a big difference between like the sub 37. There's just like this w real weight to it compared to anything that I have. Cause I usually use main stage yeah. live and I've got a lot of native instrument stuff as well. And I think this native instrument stuff sounds good, but for me, I haven't got to a point where I can make it feel sort of like as thick and as heavy as like the <laughs> sort of like as the real thing. And I just kind of wonder if, if you've had, anything like that or if you've kind of found a workaround that sort of makes it feel just as thick as the real thing um i'm not i'm not sure i did do when i kind of when i first when i first played for ellie i was using I, well, in rehearsals i actually never live i had a moog voyager and i had all my sounds programmed in that and that was kind of running through my pedal board and i think my amp as well um and then kind of as we neared the end of rehearsals I think we realized we were going to do some kind of international shows that we wouldn't necessarily be able to take our synths to so that was when I sampled everything um and if I'm honest I think I think we did AB them at the time and the the samples actually sounded a little bit better but I think that's partly because I was kind of I was I guess I, I really kind of spent the time crafting the samples through an amp and I was going through like I was going through like nice nice preamps and things so it's probably going through a nice yeah. sing signal path um, and I think we did a bit of AB and then I think since then I've not done any blind testing um, I mean I know I know at front of house with Ellie at least I know that the bass synth goes through like a sans amp rack unit and okay yeah um, and I think maybe even see a bit of tube compression um but I mean, I, I don't know. I've not. I I guess with the nature of that gig, I, I only ever hear it on ears, and I'm always really happy with how it sounds on ears. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sure. I mean, I I generally always add a little bit of kind of saturation to my bass sound. So like whether that will be kind of like the saturator in Ableton, um, or like sometimes even just like the amp plugin, I might run that in parallel, um, or like a bit of light compression. But um, yeah, I I generally I've I've not I've never kind of had a feeling of of it's it's I've definitely don't feel like it's lack it's ever lacked power. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. But um, I'm not really sure why that is. <laughs> oh, 
That's all right. Well, do you have any little massive tips? So I have massive. Yeah. Um, and I use it a bit. Um, but do you have any, any tips for people? I guess, uh, well, this, I'll be a bit selfish and just say for people <laughs> looking to get specifically great bass sounds out of, out of massive, is there, uh, yeah, any tips for that? There's one preset that I always used to go to called like the three octave sub. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if you've used that one, but I always felt like it sat well in in the mix. But yeah, uh, any tips would be greatly appreciated. Yeah, I do know. I do know the three octave sub thing, um, and it. I, I do like that sound. I I think generally when I'm doing sound design, I I know some people kind of find a preset that's close to where they. Are. I think I, I guess I learned a lot of that stuff on synth. So I can I kind of always start with a single oscillator. Um, yeah, I think ge- generally I'll I'll kind of begin maybe with like a with just a sine wave, um, and essentially kind of add add from that. Um, I think I kind of feel like if if I can get, I guess I'm I'm trying to. I think sometimes I've I've had it in the past. If I'm playing bass and I move to bass synth, and e- even on like a hardware synth, even if it feels really big, it can sometimes lack that punch in the mid range. Um, yeah. So a lot of the time I'll start out with maybe trying to create a core sound that I think there's the massive, there's like the sine to square wave kind of oscillator. Um, okay. And a lot of the time I'll use that as kind of the core. So that'll be, that'll maybe be like what I treat as kind of the, the core oscillator. Um, and I would, I'll kind of generally, I, I think I kind of have a, a point on that where I think, I think I have like the the thing that kind of sweeps through the wavetable. I probably have kind of around like generally nine to nine to eleven o'clock. Um, so you're kind of moving from a, a sine wave towards the square end of the table. So you're kind of, I guess, introducing that kind of harmonic, a bit more harmonic content. So I'll kind of use that to create kind of a bass sound. And sometimes I will run that in parallel to a separate kind of uh, filter envelope, an amplitude envelope. So I'll maybe use like a one of the like ADSR envelopes to actually automate, like directly automate the volume on that oscillator. So I'll maybe use that to create like a core punch sound and then maybe kind of yeah. build stuff around that. So um, that's really how I start. And I found that yeah. that, and I think I found that that kind of generally gives me a degree of consistency from sound to sound. Because I think I think sometimes, I think sometimes when you're playing live, if you, I think if you if you focus too much on recreating the, the like, the sound from the record, yeah, um, you can often end up, often end up with real like. I mean, with someone like Ellie, a lot of the time she can be working with different producers from track to track. And so there's a degree where you you want to kind of acknowledge the kind of the unique characteristic of each song, but you want something that's that kind of ties every song together and some and like a tonality, I think. So um, I mean, with Ellie, I, I have this kind of sub channel that actually is pretty much the same patch on every song. And it is that kind of sign sign to square thing giving like a punchy core sound and then underneath that there'll be like a pure sine wave sub oscillator which is just a kind of 
make people's stomachs feel ill. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then I'll kind of layer another sound kind of on top of that. Um, or, or like if, I mean, it depends. I mean, some, I, I, I generally like to kind of have one good sound rather than lots of average sounds that sound good together. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I mean, if, if I'm honest, I think at this point that the sound design thing is, it's almost like muscle memory. I kind of, I think I've kind of done it so much and for so long, um, that I think it's kind of you, uh, I think my ability to kind of hear, I guess, discern what's happening. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure I kind of have the cognitive recall to know what's actually going on, <laughs> but, but it happens. Yeah. Are there, are there any parameters that you like specifically need, like will um, sort of adjust in the live situation or is everything like automated? Um, no, I generally, I'll always have like, I'll always have some kind of pitch control on the pitch bend. Um, yeah. and I pretty much always have something happening on the mod wheel and that I'll always, I, I kind of, I, I always like to try and do as much live as I can. So I'll kind of exhaust, I'll exhaust every option I have before I automate things. Um, so maybe like a mod wheel might be like a filter opening or closing, um, what I've actually ended up doing loads in like the last couple of years is you can with like the macro controls in massive actually kind of having these massive sounds that morph between essentially kind of morph between two presets. So kind of at one end of the macro, it will be one thing. And then as you sweep up through the macro, your whole kind of sound shifts into something else. So it might be that you can kind of move between like, I guess like a, kind of classic kind of reese based sound and then that might kind of turn into so, like something more kind of housey with like a really kind of quick attack and kind of like a fifth kind of going on in there maybe with a sure, bit more yeah. of a hollow resonance so i've been doing that a lot and that uh, the kind of performance feature of that's really fun to be able to kind of morph from one sound to another um i've been doing that a lot it's generally generally i'm doing that and filter closing and opening is generally what i'm doing um, and that, I mean, a lot of these bass parts are quite boring. <laughs> so, um, that, that's generally. Are there a number of songs where you're, where you're doing sort of both like a normal bass and synth bass in, in the same song? Yeah. Or is it usually you're kind of on one for one song and another for the other? No, there's, there's probably a lot of bouncing around. I mean, I do a lot of the way I play bass. I, I mean, my kind of, I have this. I have probably about 15, 15 effects pedals all in this rack unit. Um, so I'm doing a lot of a lot of the synth bass sounds I'm playing on the on the bass guitar as well, just really right. heavily affected. Um, but there's I think there's there's maybe there's one there's one section in the set that we were kind of doing the last two years where I don't I'm just playing bass synth, and that's for these two songs that are very kind of. I guess like dance kind of club orientated songs, but I think other than that, it's I'm generally always playing both together, um, and that'll be kind of, and not necessarily always doing, like that might be that the bass guitar is covering a synth sound for the chorus, um, and then the synth is covering like the synth sound in the verse, and then maybe on top of that, sometimes I'll I might have kind of a sub pedal on the bass so I can do like a sub dive. 
I can do like a dive on the bass guitar, kind of get the yeah. sub drop in while I'm, you know, my kind of, so I'll just kind of tap that, I guess, with my left hand and my right hand might be kind of holding the, the bass line down or there's a bit, I think there was one song we were doing where there was kind of like a, a bass synth doubled by a bass guitar, but it was harmonizing like little parts of it. So that was kind of, I was kind of playing the part on the synth with my right hand and then my left hand was kind of tapping out the bass guitar harmonies. So there's a bit of that kind of. <laughs> that's, yeah. quite, that's quite something. <laughs> it's fun. It's like, it's just kind of, some of it is just to, I guess, to keep it interesting and to keep me engaged and, and to make it a challenge. I think you kind of, I always want to kind of push myself. So um, I remember hearing, there was like an interview, I think, with Jack White once and he talked about, he'd always try and put his instruments as far away from each other as possible so that he kind of was always having to just push himself that little bit harder when he was playing. And he kind of yeah. talked about that kind of getting the most out of his performance. And I think some of that philosophy, I think I probably work with a bit, but maybe more in like a, maybe less in that physical sense, but yeah. Um, you mentioned about you guys using uh, MIDI controllers and I wondered what, what MIDI controllers do you guys use? We are using, we're, we're like, well, in the native instruments camp, we're using their kind of, their controllers. Yeah. Are you using the first version or this? I know they've come up with a second version now, right? The newer one. I can tell you the exact, give me a second. I can tell you the exact model. I did, I made like notes ahead because I was like, it's worth just having like <laughs> all the geeky stuff ready to go. But now I've lost my notes. No, no, that's that's okay. I think is there like one like called like a yeah. We're on the we're on not the newer ones. We're on the original ones before, but it's like the complete control S forty nine and S sixty nine. But I think I think the new ones have like the screens built into them, don't they? Um, and have yeah. they have new like they have physical pitch wheels and mod controls, whereas the ones before were like. Um, they were both, they were two touch strips. And I think the new one is now like a mod wheel, a physical mod wheel and a physical pitch bend wheel with like one of the touch strips underneath it. Um, so we've got like the one before that. Um, but if I'm honest, I think I like, I like the one before it. We, we kind of used a bunch of different MIDI controllers kind of doing fly gigs and you kind of get given stuff and a lot of the time it's like yeah sure it's like it would be the novation controllers and and they're great but for what we for what we were doing we kind of needed the minimum number of of kind of knobs and buttons and especially like the novation stuff and some of the elusive elusive stuff they're always trying to do kind of cl clever things you know like kind of trying to do smart mapping or things and a lot of the time that's that can be a, a pain yeah we and a I nightmare think, yeah we found <laughs> that that led to some real problems um yeah and luckily kind of never anything that affected a show but definitely in the in the run-up was more complicated than we wanted so we'd be kind of been looking for better midi controllers i mean like i ended up my moog voyager was my midi controller for like three years um and I couldn't, I, I tried other MIDI controllers and I couldn't find anything else that like, it's like stupid things. Like I couldn't find anything with the same kind of key bed. So had the kind of same kind of springy synth action. Like a lot of the MIDI controllers yeah. were like semi-weighted or 
or they were just really spongy and didn't have like a proper synth action and and then other things like the pitch knob wouldn't kind of return to zero quick enough or like yeah and I, I guess a lot of these midi controllers are designed with like a bedroom producer in mind um and so i think they're not always that performance kind of aimed or focused so i actually was yeah. looking at i actually bought all the po- the parts um and prototyped my own midi controller <laughs> um oh so like I that bought, sounds like, really cool i'd <laughs> love to do that yeah so i bought like the exact like fatar key bed that they use in the voyager um and i kind of i found this company that would like uh, like 3D printing, I, I just sent them like the Moog picture mod wheels, and they they were kind of recreating them. And I got really into it and bought like a bunch of like old like Sovtech Bakelite knobs, 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 and things. So they were all kind of going to be modular. And I was chatting to a friend about kind of making something that would be like kind of like would look like an old synth with like wooden panels. And like bent aluminium kind of casing, but I never got around to it. So I just kind of had this. I had all the parts and the circuitry, and I had that all plugged together, and it worked. And then I was kind of build a chassis for it, and I, I never really got around to it. And then Native Instruments came out with the complete controls, and they were exactly what I'd been looking for. Really, like you know, you kind of had just like eight encoders, a pitch wheel, a mod wheel. They don't. They don't have any sliders, do they? Just the no. They don't the have like any sliders. No, just like just the encoders. And we we kind of weren't using sliders or anything like that. We just wanted as simple a keyboard as possible, but also being like really nice quality. And they were using like I think they were using like the Fatar keybed. So it was like the synth action on the keys was great. You could because it was those like smart trip like the smart strips. That actually ended up being like really useful because your mod wheel, you could kind of like, rather than having to slide a mod wheel up, you could just kind of press at the point on the ribbon where you wanted the value to be. And okay, yeah. Um, and then with pitch wheel, you could like you could choose how quickly it returns back to zero. So um, they've 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 kind of they're like, in my opinion, the kind of the best MIDI controller out there. But then we would when we were kind of building the rig, we were talking to the guys from Native Instruments. They actually came down and did they did this really long kind of interview with us all talking about the rig that I don't think ever got released. It maybe was like too geeky. Um, but they were kind of saying they, they hadn't really seen them as being like live MIDI controllers. Their intention in the design. They're quite a studio as, tool, aren't yeah. they? Like, I, from some of the videos I had seen, which they look really cool, just like kind of... Um, designed to help that kind of like the producer kind of just access things really quickly yeah i mean that's definitely how they i think designed them but it turns out that they also like just happened to design like a really robust reliable midi controller so um yeah which just yeah. feel like aren't as common as you think yeah do you uh use the the 49 or the 25 for bass synth i use the 49 for bass synth and then our keyboard player has the 61 which i think is the weighted keys one yeah Um, and then our piano player has the same thing like mounted in a upright piano shell oh okay so yeah so yeah they've been they're really good just really easy to like really easy to program and set up and once they're are done. they quite easy like 
uh, I know they work really well with native instrument stuff, obviously, but for somebody who doesn't have native instrument stuff and just wants to use it as a normal MIDI controller, would that work well also? Yeah, yeah they're great. So you, you kind of, they you use their kind of MIDI programming software to set up the keyboard so you can set each knob to be whatever you want and then you essentially just save that onto the keyboard. And so then when you just power up the keyboard and switch it on, it just does that so you know... And you can kind of, you can change the color of things and you can, there's like little LED displays for each knob. So you can kind of say, you can put a name for each thing or you can turn all the knobs off. So we kind of, I think on mine, I don't use any of the knobs, so they're all off. So if I kind of knock a knob by accident in a Yeah, gig, it won't do anything. No, it's not going to send out anything. And because that, I mean, that is the thing with things like the Novation stuff is like even just turning off the knobs, you're like, it's fine them being there. But if you accidentally hit one and maybe it it's trying to be clever and it, you know, like there's things where like sometimes it'll be set to like a master transport control or something. And then suddenly, you know, you're kind of in the middle of a of a song and you, you knock a knob and suddenly you're, you're at the end of the song. <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah I'd, I, I mean, I feel like there's a real market for like a, just a robust, simple midi controller that isn't trying to be fancy so maybe i should finish building mine but are yeah. you um just sort of on the back of what you said are you able to um discuss a time when ableton didn't work right i know most of the time it's great it's solid and it's perfect but are, is has there ever been a time when things didn't go well maybe it was user error or something i mean we've i think we've been really fortunate that nothing's really happened live at a gig um, yeah, there's definitely been like loads of stuff that's happened in rehearsals where you're like, oh, I'm an idiot. I didn't, I didn't do that. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of the the common thing is, I guess, because of some of the degree of automation we have happening, or you, you know, like automation will happen in the wrong bar or something. Or I've definitely had times where you you've kind of triggered a sound turning off, but no new sounds turned on. So you'll kind of be sound checking. Um, so those those have probably been the the main problems. I've not really had anything that has been like able to necessarily doing something entirely that I couldn't understand. There have I think there are a few things, but I think I've actually I can't I can't recall them. There's there's a few times oh no, there there's a few times where like Ableton's kind of there's this thing that I keep encountering where Ableton will kind of almost kind of remap itself or just kind of forget stuff um and i'm not entirely sure why it does it and yeah and i've spoken to them and they're not entirely sure why it does it and i've i've not been able to recreate it um so there's a few things like that that are out there um but the big i mean we we did have when we were kind of designing and building the keyboard rig for the last kind of cycle so i guess like two years ago we hit like a massive hurdle um we'd kind of we'd built this keyboard rig and it it all seemed to be working great and then we started running the set and um we were just getting loads of kind of glitches and clicks and pops out of the keyboard rig and we were looking at it and the cpu meter was at like kind of 15 15 so we were like it can't be can't be that and our everything was clocking well from interfaces and um we kind of 
we didn't really know what was going on and and at, at the time our keyboard rig i'd i'd built um a max for live patch that gave us like a visual kind of manual midi mapper um yeah like my pet hate with ableton and the thing that i would beg beg them to kind of change is their MIDI mapping is the worst thing in the world. Um, and like the way that you, I mean, particularly in the way that we're using it, because we, you know, you have kind of all these different instruments and MIDI controllers all plugged into Ableton. And so if you're maybe playing a song and you want to assign MIDI control over any parameter really you kind of to do it you have to tell everyone on stage or in the rehearsal room to not play any midi um and you've got to make sure that you've clicked on the right thing and you know or or then maybe once you've assigned a mapping if you decide that your kind of minimum and maximum values are wrong and you want to change them you can't just kind of tweak them and and hear them go so i i built a max for live patch to do that um and then it turns out that uh Max for Live wasn't fully supported for multi-threading. So it wasn't actually, essentially, even though our CPU meter looked really healthy, everything everything that was using this Max for Live patch, which was like 20 voices of synth, were all just being shut down. Like they were all just being shunted down essentially like a single thread. So we weren't actually using the multi-core processes at all everything was was going down one so we were maybe using like 20 percent of all of the cpu available but that was like 100 percent of one of the processes yeah um, sure that involved a like for me kind of like 24 hours of having to well at first trying to work out what it was and then and then i kind of spoke to ableton and found out that so i then had to get rid of that which meant we kind of there was some functionality in that max for live patch I'd built that um, I had to find ways of kind of doing that kind of a bit more manually. Oh, that sounds like a really stressful time. Yeah, it was, it was really long and arduous. Um, I can we, imagine when it's like, you know, even if you're playing with a small artist, that is quite stressful. But I think yeah. when you're playing with a bigger artist, it would just the pressure would just become... Oh, completely. I mean, it was crazy. And, <laughs> yeah. and I think like whatever Losing level sleep. you're at and like whatever gig you're doing, there's never enough rehearsal time. And, and I think, I don't think I've ever, I think almost everything I've done, there's, there's always like, everything's always fine until, until like the final day of rehearsal. <laughs> and then, and yeah. then something will happen. Like we, we had this thing, um, we were getting ready for like a short UK tour with Becky Hill and everything had been fine. And then the last day, it, yeah, it was like the last day of rehearsal. And it was the morning we were setting up and we were checking that all the keyboard sounds were, were cool. And basically, uh, complete had just gone, or not complete contact, had kind of gone really weird. And the U, like the like the GUI had gone kind of blank. So when yeah. you opened up the instruments, there was just nothing. It was just a blank like a little blank window with the with like the contact like menu bar at the top and it wasn't making any noise so we were like oh i guess something's been corrupted in this session so we went back and um and as we went back there was like 
it was almost like the corruption had been retrospective. So like every previous version of that session was doing the same weird thing, even though like eight hours before everything had been fine. So um, we had to reload all the sounds and there are a couple of other weird things that, that were happening. There was some automation that we'd imported from kind of session to arrangement mode that wasn't behaving properly. And it turned out that, I don't know, for whatever reason, Ableton wanted us to manually draw in the automation all over again rather than dragging it in from clips in session mode. So things like that happen. <laughs> happen. Yeah. But I I think we generally, generally I kind of experience them more in the kind of build and rehearsal time more than I have in the, the live setting. Um, I mean, there's certainly still times when like, there might be like a weird like MIDI hanging note or something. Can you, you know, you'll hit a note and it'll just sustain. Um, but I don't know if that's, that could, there's so many things that could be playing into that. And definitely times when the CPU seems a bit harder, harder pushed. Um, but no, generally my experience of Ableton Live is it's pretty solid. I mean, years ago, like eight years ago, I was, I was playing with this band diagrams and we were, we were doing like loads of live looping with Ableton and we were kind of triggering. We, we wanted the, the songs to be able to kind of, I guess like have an improv improvisational element to them. So if you wanted to repeat a chorus, you could. So we were kind of triggering the part, like each section of a song was being triggered and we were like live looping vocal parts and guitar parts and deriving a song tempo from that which then the bits of track we had would all sync up to and then alongside that I was multi-track recording everything into Ableton um, oh wow and we did that for like we did that for a tour and we had like no backup so it was like 10 or 12 shows I did that and um and it didn't crash once <laughs> so maybe I've just been really lucky so um are you able to tell me kind of like on like what the specs are on what sort of machines you guys would be using for Ableton with LA? Like are you using laptops or do you use Mac Pros or? Um, with the LE, we have like an A rig and a B rig. So all, all the traveling we're doing, we have kind of a duplicate of the rig. Although the A rig is actually is all kind of the Mac towers. So we yeah. have them pretty much full spec. Um and are those like are those like the sort of latest Mac Mac Pros or would they be older ones? They were the latest as of like two years ago. Yeah, the sort of black trash can ones. Yeah, that like the donut thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah they're those ones. So we we have four of those. Um, wow, yeah, what a dream! Like, <laughs> which is crazy. I mean, we we kind of, I mean that that build we had. I mean, we had so little rehearsal time. I think we had like maybe. 10 days, 10 days of, of kind of rehearsals. And then we went into maybe kind of three days of production rehearsals. Um, but like the parts for the rig weren't ordered until like the second day of rehearsals. So oh, wow. the first like five days of rehearsals was with our old rig. So we were kind of testing some things and then the second like the last kind of day six to ten was us kind of building the rig and, and testing it as we went so we we can't we did we overspec um just in case um, yeah 
And so, but I guess for that we have like, I guess we have a separate a separate computer for playback and a separate computer for keys. And then we have a redundant backup for both of those. For both of them, yeah. Um, Do you know if, if has the redundant backup, have they kicked in? Are you aware of that? Would you even know um, if it had? We, I mean, they're, they're set up in a way that we wouldn't know. I don't, I don't actually think, I'm not sure they ever have. I think, I think we've manually, I think our playback tech has manually switched to the redundant backup maybe once or twice. Yeah. Um, but I, th- I think for the most part, I guess they've been relatively redundant. Um, <laughs> I don't think we've, we've not really needed them. I, I certainly know that um, the way that they've ended up being set up is that they don't, we've actually ended up not having them kind of automatically switching just because we've not needed to. And I think our, our kind of playback tech found it more useful for him to be able to manually switch between them. Um, yeah. And so, so we've had, I think that I just don't, I don't think it's happened much. Um, nothing that I can recall. Um, yeah. And then we've then since built like a B rig, which is just built on MacBook pros. Um, and they were kind of essentially kind of top spec of those. So that was like, that would have been like 18 months ago they were built. So I guess top of the line MacBook Pros and everything kind of runs fine on that. I mean, I think truthfully what we're doing isn't really that kind of intensive. Demanding. Yeah, like I think the, the keyboard kind of session can run on my laptop, which is like a mid-2012 MacBook Pro with like a 2.7 i7 kind of processor and like only like 16 gig memory so and that that kind of runs our sessions pretty kind of pretty competently i mean the 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 most demanding thing really is i guess is the keyboard sounds and i guess because we're using particularly massive um is all kind of about cpu um whereas i guess contact is is sample based so you're looking at kind of ram i mean so part part of what we do try to do and what we do try to be mindful of when we're doing keyboard sounds is is sometimes we might kind of sample a sound from massive into contact just to kind of free up a bit of cpu space um and like vice versa if we're maybe using lots of sample instruments we'll maybe move something to cpu so that we don't kind of overexert the ram yeah did you have any sounds from Logic, you know, main stage, um, that you needed to like move over, or was everything just like you know a third party instrument which would work in either main stage or Ableton? Yeah, I think pretty much everything was third party plugins. So that that we we kind of hadn't done that intentionally, but that's kind of what we'd done. I and mean, there was a bit of we used a bit of stuff in EXS twenty four. So there was some of the sample instruments native to logic that we kind of resampled and moved back over. Um, and we did that with a bit of, there's a, there's some software called auto sampler, um, that I think actually Apple bought and is kind of integrated into logic now and into EXS, like EXS 24 has like an auto sampler function, but it's not as good as the original software. Um, and I, I have a kind of a copy of the original software that still works, even though the company kind of doesn't, doesn't kind of support it anymore um so we did that a bit to kind of migrate a few things over but i don't think i don't think we were u- really using any of the 
the logic samplers we may be reusing is it ESA isn't it is this is the synth in logic I think I think our keyboard player did have a few ES8 sounds but I think we just we just reprogrammed them in like FM4 or something so oh okay sure uh, now this is something you probably knew but I didn't but yeah I was hanging out with Steve the other day Steve Evans for oh, anyone yeah. who who doesn't know <laughs> beauty of a man a legend the wonderful yeah the wonderful but Steve showed me something where you could take like um like uh, an EXS24 instrument and you can actually like um, drag it into like Ableton into the sampler. Yeah, and you um, can generally drag it into contact as well. They kind of all use the same. Yeah, I was like, yeah. what? I was like, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, the way they, it's quite, it's quite convenient the way they all talk to each other. If it's okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you just a bunch of questions from... Well, a, really a bunch of questions that I should have asked you earlier, but I didn't. So I'll probably just chop them up and I'll put them back at, at sort of like at the beginning of the interview. Yeah, go but for it. I just, I just didn't want to stop you because you're saying so much good stuff. <laughs> if that's okay. So Don't I'll just ask you. Have a tendency, I have like a tendency to waffle. So I'm sorry um, about that. Do you mainly use Ableton, you know, just in the live situation or do you guys use it in the studio as well? Um, personally, like the majority of my experience of it is kind of live. Um, I've, I've, I use it a bit on kind of studio things that I do. So on, on bits of kind of the producing and, and writing stuff that I do, I use Ableton. I generally use it at like a writing stage, um, rather than kind of the, I use it more maybe as a demoing tool then. I, I I really like kind of, I think in session mode, there's not a whole lot that kind of comes close to Ableton. And in terms of its general yeah. kind of MIDI functionality, I don't, I don't really think there's anything else that's as competent as it. So I think that, that for me, so I think then in the studio, it's kind of, I find it really useful for, for kind of writing. I think like the ability to kind of maybe kind of work on a couple of different verse ideas or a couple of different chorus ideas and to be able to kind of um, layer them and piece them up together into arrangement. I really like the way you can do that in Ableton and, and then even the way that you can kind of recycle your own content. So like if you've, particularly if you've recorded different parts, you maybe could layer like a bass line from the verse over the chorus and you can do that really easily just with clips and if you have something yeah. like a launch pad or push, I really like that as a writing tool. Um, and I've done a few kind of performances and bits of recording with kind of modular synths and all the kind of recording I've been doing with that, I've just been doing with Ableton, which again is just kind of the way that they can interface. So using kind of like some of the expert sleepers stuff and um, that kind of allows me, but again, I guess Ableton's really functioning more like a sequencer for me in that. Thing. So I think I, I probably generally think of Ableton as a sequencer, I guess, more than I think of it as like a DAW, perhaps. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I generally am more inclined to record in like Logic or Pro Tools. Um, right. Right. Sure. Um, can you tell us about some of your favorite stock Ableton plugins? You kind of mentioned a couple earlier, but... Just thought I'd I'd give you a chance to go on the record. I really I really like the Ableton filters, um, especially since that kind of that big update when they kind of started to have different 
versions of them and the ability to drive them. Um, I think they, I think they're really good. Um, and I also like really like their EQ8 is just a really nice, easy to use EQ, which I know sounds really boring. Um, and then I, I guess like the whole instrument racks thing I really like and the auto panner in Ableton I use like all the time. Um, kind of, I essentially use that in place of like side chains a lot of the time, like rather than kind of having that really kind of heavily side chain compression, I'll just use auto pan to kind of create that essentially. Um, so I really like those. I think I, I just kind of like the modular way that Ableton works, I think like, and the way that everything can talk to each other and almost every plugin can be side chained to another, like the way that that's all packaged and integrated, I, I think is great. Oh, cool. Um, can you give us any tips for somebody who's just getting started with Ableton? So somebody who's, you know, you know, just kind of getting out of the box and just getting set up and is a little bit overwhelmed, a little bit intimidated. Yeah, I think, um, I think I'd maybe, I'd, I'd encourage you to kind of jump straight into like the session mode over the arrange mode. Um, and kind of em embrace kind of the, uh, I guess the unfamiliarity, like I think like lean into it. Like I think where it can feel confusing, I think explore the bits that are confusing to you and maybe find a way of exploiting them. Um, and may maybe rather than trying to like bend it to meet what you expect, kind of give yourself over to it a bit. And I, I think through that, you'll start to understand it a bit more and, um, I guess particularly in session mode and how it's a bit less linear to lots of other DAWs, I think some of that is what makes it so strong and for me makes Ableton such a inspiring bit of software to use. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't really, I can't think of anything like real, like practical <laughs> like tips, but I, yeah, I think kind of no, embrace right. its eccentricities, I think. Yeah. Um, I assume you've probably heard or seen some things on Ableton. Yeah, 10. I have. Is there uh, is there anything that you're that is kind of really exciting you about Ableton Ten? Um, I'm excited about like the new wavetable synth. I think that'll be really good. Yeah. Um, that's the main thing. I think I'm I'm still really disappointed <laughs> that they've not done anything to update their MIDI mapping. Um, I'm probably I'm yeah. still kind of I think I'm I'm still maybe a bit grumpy about that because um, <laughs> yeah, sure. to me <laughs> yeah, that's something sure. that they for what I use it for and I feel like for what most people use it for I, I can't see any reason why there isn't like a manual MIDI mapper or even like I think like they've not got like MIDI MPE support on the new thing I guess like that kind of the kind of polyphonic MIDI control that I guess things like the Rowley Seaboard and stuff I think it's disappointing that um, able to maybe aren't integrating some of that kind of performance functionality into it. Um, so I'm maybe more disappointed with Ableton 10 than I, than I am excited at the minute. Um, I think I was hoping that yeah, they'd integrate yeah, sure. some of that stuff. Um, but no, I think it, it looks good. It, it looks nice that it'll be a bit kind of, I like that it'd be kind of a darker kind of graphical interface would be nice i'm actually i'm quite excited and it's such a like small thing but i'm quite excited about the changes to the metronome yes and how they've given a few more 
op- options there. And uh, it seems like, I think from some of the videos I've seen, it seems like uh, zooming in and zooming out is going to be a little bit easier. Yeah, and they are doing, has been. they're kind of allowing, allow, they've got some stuff and they kind of supporting kind of more advanced um, kind of MIDI editing across like multiple clips and tracks. Like I think, I think lots of that would be really good. Um, and they've got, they've got like a, is it a new, you've got like a new echo plugin as well, haven't they for it? They've got a few things like that. I mean, I think oh, their plugins are always really good. I, f- I feel like they'll, I feel like once I get into it, it'll be, it, I probably will be more taken by it then. I think like the wave, the wavetable thing I'm, I'm, I'm really excited by. I've kind of really been enjoying kind of wave, wavetable kind of synthesis. Um, I'm kind of into that. I think that'll be kind of, and I think the Ableton synths and instruments are always really good. Um, so I think that'll be yeah. great. And yeah, I'm sure, I guess like the multi-MIDI clip editing will be really useful. I'm sure that that'll save me like hours. So I, I probably should be giving it a bit more praise than I am. <laughs> um, I, I meant to ask you earlier when I was asking you about what sort of, you know, laptops or computers do you guys use in the live situation but uh what interfaces do you guys That's use a really as good well question. um i'm not actually sure what interface we're using at the minute i think i think That's we're okay. using we're maybe using the zen audio stuff that's maybe i'm maybe totally yeah. out of that i mean i i kind of am more um i'm more involved in the um in the software side of things really kind of i i do more of the kind of architecture of that and i i guess it's kind of the 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 point that we're doing stuff with elliot's kind of we're all sharing different things so i'm not i i can't actually remember <laughs> what interfaces we're using probably really nice ones um in my i think we maybe kind of some of the antelope audio stuff yeah, i think we're probably sure. on um i think that's what we had been looking at um and then, I mean, we were, we've used things like the Motu Ultralights and things like that in the past and um, the Focusrite stuff we've used a lot as well. I mean, personally, the, the interfaces that I use are kind of generally just small ones. I, again, I use like the Native Instruments Complete Audio 6 and then I have like an Apollo um, and then I have like a Aphex did like a 500 series rack kind of case that also had an interface i use that a lot just for kind of home recording um with a couple of nice preamps in it so last section i do a little quick fire round and uh, you can just give me two or three word answers if you want to give me more that's fine if you don't that's okay as well um okay so question number one which as you've spoken about i'm a fair bit i think i might know this one but your favorite third party plugin Ooh, uh, i mean I I really like Massive. It's probably the one that I use the most. I I I also really like the Sound Toys plugins, um, as well. Yeah. Like the yeah, I've been I just got their plate this week, and I've been messing around with that a lot at home. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> free, free. At yeah, the moment. and I'm really excited to use it live. <laughs> so um, yeah, that that is I'm very excited by, um, but like all of their stuff, I really like. Uh, their Echo Boy I use a lot on sound. Um, if you had to choose one or the other, what would it be? Session view or arrangement view? Uh, session view. Uh, here's a tough one. Analog or digital? I don't know. Uh, 
digital brain analog heart i guess i don't i i mean <laughs> uh i i really like both i kind of i <laughs> yeah i don't i maybe maybe analog i think kind of at the heart of it i really love getting my hands on things but i love the possibilities that um digital can kind of help you achieve and i i kind of like embracing some of the weirdness of digital or some of the unnatural quality of it i think i like okay um do you have a favorite plug-in for drums if you're working on a project Drummers? yourself <laughs> and you've got some drums uh, I, in it what's one of your favorite plugins for drums honestly when i'm doing drums I, I generally am either using loops or um i just use like the ableton drum packs a lot of the time if i'm programming drums i really don't enjoy programming drums so i'll um I'll generally try it, and I kind of don't like. I think it's maybe where like my maybe that like in drums, analog versus digital. I definitely am an analog drummer. I'd rather have a drummer. I think I don't think I'm a, I'm not a good drummer, so I don't know why I would program drums. So um, so yeah. I probably I mean I've I've used BFD a bit, and that's good. But generally, generally I just use the Ableton drum packs, and just program them in that. If I need a program drum part. Uh, okay, this one I think I know. A uh, favorite plugin for synth bass would it be Massive? Generally, Massive, yeah. Um, and I think I know this one as well. Real drums or samples? Yeah, real drums every time. Uh, well, Sai, thank you so much for your time. I just wanted to give you a chance just to kind of plug anything that you've got going on. Um. Well, I have I, in the last kind of month or so, I've started a new venture with some friends um we've opened like a studio which is out in kind of stratford east london so check that out which you can find at buff uh, i'm from stratford ontario canada oh well then which is uh, a wonderful link um yeah so if you just kind of go to buffrecords.com um and have a little look at what we're doing there and uh if you need a studio come and check it out but we've yeah we've kind of got some that's kind of becoming quite an exciting little place for me creatively and it's a pretty amazing team of guys involved there so that's kind of that's the big thing i plug at the minute um i don't really have anything else to plug um i've got a few things with ellie just some kind of corporate acoustic gigs i'm i'm waiting to see what 2018 looks like um there's kind of a bunch of people other people I've been playing with and will be playing with, and there's a few kind of recording projects, but um, yeah. I'm waiting for it all to take shape. Did you do anything with the Japanese house? Yeah, I did a bit of um, I did a bit of kind of programming for them, and actually their drummer, musical director Freddie Sheed, is a really good friend, and he's involved in Buff Records, um, and so I think he's uh. out. Yeah, I I love I love their stuff. That's been one of my highlights. So 2017 was hearing their stuff. Yeah, Dave, I I love it. They're great. So, yeah, Freddie kind of asked me to go and help them with some of their Ableton things and a little bit of sound design back in kind of Easter time, which was really good fun. So I'd be nice to do some more stuff with them. I'd love to play on a gig like that. It would be really good fun. Weren't they somehow kind of involved with like the 1975 guys? Didn't they kind of produce? Or had something to do with... Yeah, they they kind of... I think Matty and George from the 1975, I think they, they kind of co-produced all of... Or certainly the early EPs. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was kind of them. It's, there's some really cool yeah. vocal stuff 
on the yeah, Japanese they have house. some. I I really love that kind of approach to kind of vocal processing and sampling. Yeah. Do you have any idea on what was sort of behind any of that stuff? If you're allowed to say, if you're not allowed I, to say, I that's don't okay actually well. know. I could ask. <laughs> um, no, no, that's that's fine. <laughs> but it's no, just, I don't. It's such a it's a really unique sound. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely kind of a unique kind of vocal harmony thing that they do that I, to my ear sounds like it might be like an even tied thing like maybe they're ultra harmonizer but um, yeah but i'm not i'm not entirely sure so cool well thank you very much another episode in the bag no i'm not in the bag been accused of that but no just on kool-aid squash tropicana orange juice and a little bit of elderflower cordial that was the incredible Cy Francis, who is a very humble, talented, nice guy, and I so appreciate Cy giving me his time. Okay, please join me next week. Spoiler alert. We got Richard Simmons. We got Gene Simmons. You think we would stop there? No. We're pulling out all, all the stops for episode six. That's right. We got Tom Cruise, John Travolta, and Will Smith and uh, a few of the stars from Stranger Things as well Eleven turns out she's a massive Ableton fan the host of Ableton cast is known to stretch the truth have a wild imagination and be flat out full of BS